to where we're headed with Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 4 through 9. Be on guard against that which is not true, that which is deceptive, that which looks appealing um, but is false and entrapping, but also to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ sent us out as his disciples and that when he said that I will send you out to, to fish for people, to bring them to me, that that was the fulfilling of the great commission intended to go out and therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we turn our attention to Philippians uh, chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 9 this day. But before we come to God's Word and turn our attention to it, let's pray together. God, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of Jesus Christ, our central concern. Speak, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that the word may be illumined to us, that you may reach out to our hearts, that you may meet us where we are in life, and that you may lead us into a deeper walk of faithfulness with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray with gratitude. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. wonder where you find yourself on a particular spectrum of being an optimist or a pessimist. And maybe a, a better way to ask the question for self-reflection is, uh, where do you think you actually are and where is it that you would like to be? And that can go either way. Optimist, pessimist. Is it good to be optimistic? Certainly. Can it also sometimes be accused of being naive, also a fair critique or at least a fair caution? Sometimes maybe we tend towards being a little bit more pessimistic, a little bit more negative. Maybe we wish we were more positive, but that's just not the way we can bring ourselves to see the world. This is also a justifiable position as we consider we're not going to be tricked, I'm not going to pretend things are better than they are. I'm not going to ignore the pain and suffering in the world. And if that makes me pessimistic, then so be it. A highly optimistic person might wish for 
a little bit more balance. And a person who is incredibly pessimistic might wish that they could sometimes just see a brighter side of things. But I would say optimism and pessimism, if that's on one line of the axis, maybe the other line is, are you an idealist or a realist? Are you ideal about the way you see the world, about how you hope everything turns out and what you believe and perceive about how the world is? Are you an idealist? Or would you classify yourself as a realist, as someone who tries to see as accurately, no fluff, no interpretation, this is the way I see it? If that's maybe the X and Y axis, I would say there also is a Z axis. Now I know the the mental construct is is getting a little bit thick here. Um, But that might be between being an ethicist or a pragmatist. Do the ends justify the means or the means justify the ends? And at least where we find ourselves at this place in Philippians, I think that's not as much the controversy to wonder about. We serve a God who calls us to faithfulness, knowing that the The ends are ultimately in God's hands, and our responsibility is to live faithfully and to see what ends come out of a faithful means. So I wonder, do we find ourselves being realistic pessimists or idealistic optimists? Or maybe is somewhere in Philippians chapter 4, Verses 4 through 9 contained a slight lens of what could be called a realistic optimism. A perspective on life that seizes after some hope, but not a naive false hope, but a pursuit of that which is good, a trust that is based on the faithfulness that God will make all things new, that God is sovereign over all things, that God does love us and care for us, that this can fuel a certain sense of optimism But that's grounded by realism, by knowing that there's pain and suffering and injustice in the world, that there is cancer and poverty and war and hatred and division. But if we get stuck too far in one area, then there's no encouragement. There's nothing pulling us towards a greater vision. In fact, there can just be resignation. Well, the world's pretty terrible. And someday God will make it better, and I'll just hang out until that happens. That's hard to be motivated by. In Philippians chapter 4, we get some very optimistic words that Paul tells us to set our minds on that which is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, to think about the things that are excellent and praiseworthy. This is an optimistic pursuit. And yet this is coming to the church in Philippi at a time that that the Apostle Paul is writing, he has been imprisoned. He has been beaten and flogged and stoned and thrown out of cities and belittled. And yet, in the midst of all of that, being completely realistic about the suffering he has endured, comes back in Philippians 4 to say, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. The emphasis and repetition to say, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice, matters. Not the least of which because we know that in the time that the Apostle Paul is writing, paper was expensive. You couldn't go to Staples and buy a ream of eight and a half by 11. Paper, papyrus, was expensive and not abundantly available. 
Words had to be used carefully and concisely. And yet this was worth repeating, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Rejoice even as I am in chains. Rejoice even as I have been imprisoned. Rejoice even as there is division among friends within the church. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul is not naive. Paul is not removed from the difficult realities of our world. But he is driven by a certain optimism given to him by God to pursue that which is good and to have that optimism fueled by faith in God. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. This is even as just a couple verses earlier than where we started. There's a plea made for Yodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Because they have contended at Paul's side. They have taken great part in the cause of the gospel. God has used them well. And yet now, these two co-laborers in Christ are divided against each other. This certainly causes grief. This causes pain. Division is not the intent of the body of believers. And yet, even within that, Paul is not so naive as to think, you know what, those two aren't getting along, but I'm sure it'll work itself out. If we've ever taken that view of a relationship, it probably didn't work itself out. What's buried alive stays alive. And yet also found it worth saying to tell the church to plead with them, to hope that that would make some difference, that we can do better than this. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There is still hope. There's not a giving up. There's not an abandonment. There's not a pessimism. There is a hope and a desire for things to be better. Let your gentleness be evident to all says the one who has to measure his words carefully and be on trial for Christ. The Lord is near. I think that phrase, um, when we open worship, we say, may the Lord be with you and also with you, is a reminder to all of us that the Lord is near. This is part of what we can base our time of rest upon, that the Lord is near, that That we are not sheep without a shepherd, are we? But to remember that the Lord is near. And that even as the Apostle Paul writes this, he is someone who has all kinds of knowledge of the Old Testament. Who would know full well that the Psalms contain such phrases as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Darkness is my only companion. These are verses from the Psalms that the Apostle Paul would know full well. And yet here he says again, the Lord is near. Rest your assurance on the fact that God is near to you as a shepherd is near to their sheep. Do not be anxious about anything, says verse 6, but in every situation by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving present your requests to God. This is once again a certain realistic optimism. Because there is anxiety. This just is true. We experience anxiety and concern. 
And yet, what is it grounded in? Even within the Psalms, even within the Psalms that express the longings of the human heart, the feelings of abandonment, the feelings of hopelessness that we experience, the overwhelming anxiety and dread, and those days where we just don't want this to keep happening the way it is. Knowing full well that that's in the spectrum of human emotion. We feel all that. And yet, do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. This is what the Psalms do as well. Even the words that don't sound so pretty, even the expressions of abandonment and hopelessness are still grounded in being presented as requests to God. Even when it's just to say, God, things don't seem very good right now, and I'm not happy about it. Even that is a prayer in and of itself. This is all given to God. And the point and purpose is that then the peace of God, verse 7, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When it's presented to God, when it's handed over. Sometimes when we're angry with God, we dwell on things, we hold on to them, or maybe we don't think that the way we feel led to pray is very prayer-y, so we keep it to ourselves. And yet this is the exhortation, once again, that that we're given in Philippians, that we're given elsewhere in Scripture, is to give all of that over to God, to be honest, to be authentic, to express to God the reality of where our hearts are. But all of this is framed as being given over to God in prayer and petition. Usually petition is a very negative word. When I think of petition, I think about election years when we're at the Ottawa County Fair booth And like, I don't really want to walk anywhere because I don't want to be chased by people with clipboards who want me to sign a petition or sign up for something. I just want to work at the fair booth and maybe eat some french fries and barbecue. Usually petition is this negative word. And here it's a reminder that this is how we are called to pray, is with a sense of petition. And certainly there's rejoicing and there's thanksgiving. All of that good stuff is all there. And yet we're asked to petition, which needs to present our deepest needs and longings before God as well. Even in situations that seem dire. This is not written from a place of naivety, but it's not written from a place of hopelessness. It's not written of a, from a place that you only have to be nice and, and flowery in your language with God. But it's not written from a place that you can't give over the deepest longings of your soul to God either. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And then the finally, really the second finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This is a call to attune our focus in a singular direction of that which I would call eminent. Not eminent domain, not property-wise, but the theological use of the word eminent. 
you consider that there is, a, it's, there is good, and then there is the highest form of good. This is the eminent pursuit of good. You might hear the word used in shows, or, or if you listen to um, different religious language, you know, your eminence is actually a title. This is the pursuit of the highest good, the highest sense of nobility. We have knowledge as people. I'm very fond of remembering the words, everyone knows something that you don't. Each one of us here has something to contribute. There is knowledge, but then God has the eminent knowledge, the highest good of knowledge, meaning God is omniscient, all-knowing. We know some stuff, a little bit, here and there. We've got our gifts, we've got our skills to contribute, but God's knowledge comparatively is eminent. Where Philippians 4 verse 8 directs us is towards that which is eminent in a benevolent way. So that which is true, not just settling for that which is not false, not just that which is not bait that means to trick us. Often we use the phrase, um, you know, well, you're not wrong. Uh, We use this in staff a fair amount. Wow, this is going to be a busy week. Well, you're not wrong. Philippians 4, verse 8, in starting off with true, is directing us towards not just settling for that which is not false, but pursuing the highest grasp of truth that we can attain ourselves to. Not just that which is not false, but that which is true. To use a word like noble means not just that which is okay, but actually noble, evoking a royal sense. And royal is actually a fitting word because we are sons and daughters of the king. We, as women and men gathered here, have been called and adopted as Christ's own. To be noble, to think of yourself as being a noble daughter or son called by God. That which is true, that which is noble, that which is right, meaning not just that which is not wrong, but that which is fully right, digging all the way back into those Old Testament foundations where righteousness and justice were the foundations of shalom, where the Ten Commandments would be arranged for everyone's betterment, that which is right in the fullest, most eminent sense of what is right, to put our attention there on the true and noble and right and pure things, that which is pure, not just not stained, but the pursuit of pure as in holiness. Not just watching our tongue here and there or avoiding certain things, but to pursue purity in a whole sense of the word. That which is lovely. Is anyone here an amateur at anything? Hopefully. I I would think of myself as an amateur singer. Um, I stand along for moral support, not vocal support. But I use that word specifically because all of us should be an amateur at something. If we dig back into where the word amateur comes from, it comes from um, French of amour, or French-Spanish, that branch of etymology, of that which you love. Not that which you do professionally, but that which you do simply because you love it. To be an amateur can mean you're actually very good at something. But it's not your profession, it's not your livelihood, but it's that which you do simply because you love to do it. What is it that God has equipped and gifted you to do 
that you just love to do. Now, sometimes we do turn those things into occupations. I think of those who are woodworkers and pattern makers. They love to make stuff and build stuff. God gifted them at that. And hopefully, even as it's a profession, it also remains an amateur hobby, something that they love. But what is it that which we do simply because we love it? And because God in his goodness didn't just send us here as drones that all act the same way and do the same things, but even in this room, the multitude of talent, the things that we love to do and are skilled at doing, the things that as we do them, we rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. It's that which is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Thinking of people that you admire, not just people that are okay, not just people that are not bad, but those who you look up to and admire the most, to not forget that God sent those people into our lives as well, people that we respect, people that we wish we could be just a small measure of how they are. This is an eminent focus, not avoiding reality, but also fully aware of God's goodness and mercy a realistic optimism to think about that which is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and for that which is excellent and praiseworthy to think about those things. Because the world already has plenty of cynicism. The world already has plenty and and this is part of our human nature. We're all guilty of seeing the 99 things that are right and the one thing that is wrong and that is where our focus goes. And the Apostle Paul reminds us again here, this is not how God has created you to be. Not to be the ones who get hang up on that which you hate, but to be most evident in how you live that which you love. I always was a little bit confused by how these verses finish. That verse 9 says, and this is the Apostle Paul writing, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. That sounds like a tall order. We are ambassadors for Christ. We point to Christ. And yet here is a human author writing to other humans, saying, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. But in the context of these verses, it's not amiss. It's not awry. Because Paul has already built the argument that we are focusing on that which is the best. We're looking to that which good we see, those eminent traits that are evidenced either in the church or in an individual. And so for Paul to close this by saying is to say, you know what, if any of the good stuff that I've done you've seen, emulate that. This is the same Apostle Paul who knows full well that he used to kill Christians and has all kinds of other issues going on, but still saying, the good things that you've seen in me, pursue those. And likewise, I also will learn from the good that you do. This is the same focus that brings us not pretending that someone's perfect, certainly being cautious about who we choose as heroes. And in today's day and age, heroes fall quickly but to not bypass those, those who are worth looking up to, to not forget about those whom we find admirable, that we respect them, that we look up to them, and that we're grateful to God for them 
even with their shortcomings and stumblings and fallings along the way. Friends, I hope in a world that is weary and cynical and negative that we can embrace some realistic optimism. That G.K. Chesterton once wrote, The cure for weariness is not rest, but wholeheartedness. That we find wholeheartedness by pursuing the things that, that Paul in Philippians 4 reminds us to pursue. And that by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, that our minds can be set in the right trajectory, pointed in the right direction. That we can pursue an eminent side of this world. And that this will be our motivation, that this will be our equipping point to be sent out as Christ's disciples in the world. That there can be a different mindset, that there can be a different sense of hope made real and manifested among us. That all of this may be to the glory of God and that as the verse says, the God of peace will be with you both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your word.